this month's episode of Energy Voices, we're going to take a deep dive into one of the most important moments that's happened in the history of energy, sustainability, and climate change, the Paris Agreement recently signed at COP21 in Paris, France. On this show, what we're going to do is we're going to have Kaylee Taylor, Student Energy co-founder, walk us through what exactly happened at COP21, what was the process through which we arrived at this agreement, and what is contained within the Paris Agreement. So for anyone that was wanting to know a little bit more than just the headlines of a climate agreement was reached, this episode will be perfect for you. We're also thrilled to welcome Elizabeth May, who's the leader of Canada's Green Party, who's going to walk us through the history and the context that led up to the Paris Agreement, and what her role and Canada's role was in this crucial climate negotiation. Before we get into that though, I want to share with everyone the moment at which the Paris Agreement was reached. It's actually a very interesting uh, summation of the entire two weeks of the negotiating process. Uh, And there's some subtle humor that I find in this moment that I wanted to share with everyone. So to kick things off, Laurent Fabius, who's the chair of COP21 and was ultimately responsible for uh, the the final text that was submitted as part of the Paris Agreement. um, He's talking to a gentleman named Richard who leads the language group uh, from COP21. There's very little time between when the final agreement was sort of shown to all of the the countries and when the final agreement was to be voted upon and so uh, he he's just finished asking Richard to give all the different spelling errors or typos or brackets that needed to be moved and and so it's this moment of sort of bureaucratic minutia in which they're talking about the the language changes that happened to uh, COP21 and the Paris Agreement so I'll, I'll let you listen to that piece. Je demanderai donc au secrétaire exécutif adjoint de nous rappeler euh, ces corrections. Vous les avez faites, euh, Richard. Est-ce que vous voulez les rappeler Est-ce que c'est nécessaire Mr. President, I would just note that these uh, uh, corrections are, are being reflected in a document L9 Rev1. Thank you. Merci beaucoup, euh, Richard. So the part that I find very interesting is that uh, we've just finished this sort of very bureaucratic component where Richard is reading out all these different changes that need to happen to this document. uh, And Laurent Fabius is sort of going back and forth and asking him if he needs um, any additional information. And then in a span of about 10 seconds, it goes from this bureaucratic minutia to Laurent Fabius basically wrapping up the entirety of this conference, two weeks of intense negotiation uh, and almost 20 years of global campaigning to create a, a comprehensive climate agreement. And so I'll share with you uh, that clip from when he asks Richard uh, if he needs anything more until the point at which the Paris Agreement is uh, officially passed. Mr. President, I would just note that these uh, uh, corrections are, are being reflected in a document L9 Rev1. Thank you. Merci beaucoup, uh, Richard. Je vais donc inviter la COP à aller de l'avant, puis je donnerai la parole à tous ceux qui le souhaitent, je tiens à le présider, à le préciser. J'invite maintenant la COP à adopter le projet de décision intitulé Accord de Paris, qui figure dans le document. Je regarde la salle, je vois que la réaction est positive, je n'entends pas d'objection. L'accord de Paris pour le climat est accepté. I think my favorite part about this clip is that Laurent Fabius uh, says that he is looking around the room, he doesn't see any objections, and therefore this agreement is passed. And so obviously there was uh, multiple opportunities prior to this moment for countries to raise any issues and to bring up any challenges that they would have had. And there was a sense on the ground that there was going to be global consensus for this. Um, but just the time frame through which it goes from discussing uh, legal and, and ling- linguistic minutia to passing one of the most impactful climate agreements in history uh, is something I just find amazing. So um, as I said, Later in this episode, we're going to have uh, Kaylee Taylor, uh, our student energy co-founder, walk us through the specifics on COP21 and the Paris Agreement. Um, but to kick things off, first off, we're going to do uh, another installation of This Month in Energy covering January 2016. Hey there, nerds! It's Kaylee Taylor, co-founder of Student Energy here, and this is This Month in Energy, the segment of Energy Voices where I take you through what's happening in energy all around the world. 
Oil fell to the lowest level it has seen since 2003 this month, representing a 70% collapse since mid-2014. This comes at the same time as the West lifts sanctions off of Iran, which could lead to an additional supply glut that could further depress prices. Oil-producing nations are struggling to adjust to these new economic realities. With almost 3 gigawatts of energy storage capacity either in operation or planned, analysts are predicting that 2016 will be a record year for energy storage. Battery cost reductions, government funding programs, and utility tenders led to a 45% increase in the global energy storage pipeline in the fourth quarter of 2015 compared to the previous quarter. A new energy transition law in Mexico was published and announced on Christmas Day that sets the groundwork for transitioning generation of power to 35% clean energy by 2024. A very ambitious initiative could make Africa the cleanest continent. The African Renewable Energy Initiative, an African-led plan to add 10,000 megawatts of additional renewable energy on the continent by 2020 has received over $10 billion in funding from international sources at COP21. In the wake of this announcement, the head of the International Energy Agency commented that Africa could be the first region in the world to power its economic development on renewable energy rather than fossil fuels. The share of wind power in Denmark's electricity mix increased from 18.7% in 2005 to 42.1% in 2015, breaking its previously held record. When the wind production exceeds demand, Denmark also exports electricity to neighboring countries including Norway, Sweden and Germany. That's some good renewable power. Leaders from Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India joined the president of Turkmenistan in a breaking of ground ceremony for a major natural gas pipeline that could help ease energy deficits in South Asia. The project is estimated to cost $10 billion and be operational by 2019. The wind giant Vestas won a bid to provide turbines for a 76 megawatt project in South Korea that is set to be the largest wind park in the last 10 years in the region. The project will be operational by 2017. Apparently, sand is for more than just tanning. Researchers in the UAE have found that local sand could also be a useful medium for storing solar energy. More to come on that front. The U.S. Navy launched its first aircraft carrier powered partly by biofuels made from beef fat. They are calling this a milestone towards easing the military's reliance on foreign oil. Mazdar, Abu Dhabi's state-owned clean energy initiative, announced plans to invest in renewable energy projects from the UAE to Morocco to double its power generation capacity from solar and wind within a decade to meet rising demands in the region. The country is seeking to diversify its energy supply away from natural gas and plans to generate 24% of its electricity from clean energy sources by 2021. Nuclear power will remain a part of the U.S.'s energy mix over the next few decades thanks to a new funding source provided by the Department of Energy. The funding is targeted at spurring advances in technologies and alternative designs that could prevent future potential catastrophes. That's all for this month in energy. And again, here's Kaylee Taylor giving us an overview of COP21 and the Paris Agreement. So for anyone that's interested to know a little bit more about exactly what was agreed to in Paris, this segment is for you. For those of you who are new to the climate negotiation process, or perhaps have just been following it peripherally, it may be difficult to fully grasp the intricacy of the agreement and the process that went into achieving the text. For the average person, the inclusion or exclusion of a word or two may not seem like that big of a deal, but for those who've been working through this process for 20 years, the strength of a single word can make all the difference. As I heard it described by one of the members of the Filipino negotiating team, I have seen a single word in one of these agreements translate into thousands of national and local level laws and regulations. That is why every single word within the text matters. So in this segment, I'm going to take you through the key points of the Paris Agreement, good and bad, and also explain some of the diplomacy that we saw throughout the process of the negotiation. 
I want to put out a disclaimer that this is by no means a complete deep dive into the negotiation, but I will put some additional resources on the Student Energy blog for you to look at afterwards. All right, let's get started. COP stands for Conference of the Parties and is not exclusively used to refer to the climate process, but rather to describe normative diplomatic processes where countries come together to agree on a multilateral agreement. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC, convenes a COP every year in November and December to progress the global climate agenda. However, the diplomat negotiators also meet throughout the year in working groups to progress the terms of the agreement long before the official meeting. The UNFCCC climate negotiation process first began in Berlin in 1995 and achieved its first major milestone in 1997 in Kyoto, Japan, where the Kyoto Accord was reached. Kyoto was the first multilateral environment agreement, or MEA, to be focused on climate change and was unfortunately fraught with difficulty from day one. While it did cover global emissions, it was largely targeted at only the developed world and many major emitters, like the United States, did not ratify the agreement nationally or did little to meet their commitments. Understanding Kyoto is crucial for understanding the importance of the Paris Agreement. Kyoto officially expired in 2012 and determining its replacement has been on the minds of the global community for over six years. You've likely heard about the diplomatic failures at COP15 in Copenhagen in 2009. Copenhagen was set to be a landmark meeting because it was meant to achieve the agreement that would replace Kyoto. But when things broke down in the negotiations, there was a lot of skepticism about if the world would ever reach a deal that could help us to meet our emission challenges. The series of COPs between Copenhagen and Paris were largely focused on getting an interim agreement that would cover global emissions when Kyoto expired and setting the stage for Paris. I mention this because it's important to recognize that while Paris was a capstone and symbolic meeting, there were years of work that preceded it. COP21 officially ran in Paris from November 30th to December 11th, but actually went one day into overtime and ultimately ended in the agreement being declared on December 12th in a historic announcement by Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General of the United Nations, Francois Hollande, President of France, Christiana Figueres, the chair of the UNFCCC, and Laurent Fabius, Foreign Minister of France, who was praised for his instrumental diplomacy that brought the agreement together. The negotiating process in Paris was a very complex and nuanced matter, as it was driving at consensus among the nations. Each country has an official delegation of negotiators who are trying to get their needs met in the agreement, and doing so often means making trade-offs with other nations. While high-level government officials from each country, such as the Minister of Environment or President, usually officially represent their country, there are a number of experts who work through the details within the agreement. At COP21, this group was referred to as the Ad Hoc Working Group on the Durban Platform for Enhanced Action, or ADP. ADP worked through the key issues within the agreement and revised the text numerous times to be taken back to the COP representatives for official comment. From the very beginning of COP21, Minister Fabius was praised for placing quick deadlines on revisions and convening the COP transparently and openly. As the negotiations progressed, Minister Fabius adopted the Indaba process, originally popularized in South Africa, whereby key decision makers were convened in smaller groups to arrive at consensus on some of the more contentious issues. This approach was fundamental to achieving the agreement as it stands today. So now that you understand the basics of the process, let's dig a little bit more into the issues. As discussed earlier, the Paris Agreement was meant to be more inclusive of the needs and capacities of the developed and the developing world. Prior to COP, nations submitted their Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, or INDCs, that represented their reduction commitments and that formed the basis of the agreement. This was a key difference from past climate negotiations because as opposed to being prescriptive to nations about what they should do, it allowed nations to take the onus on themselves and to think through what they actually could do. It allowed nations to truly form their own agreement, and this provided a strong foundation for its basis and left the other details to be the key points of the negotiation. I'm going to quickly run through a list of the big issues that were negotiated, and then I'll go into detail on each one. 
the big issues that everyone was looking to resolve in the text were as follows. The temperature target and strength of language on how legally binding the agreement would be, common but differentiated responsibility, climate finance, inclusion of human rights and gender, loss and damage, timelines, and commitment reviews and progress. The temperature target was one of the most publicized issues at COP. For years, the world has been discussing a 2 degrees C temperature rise as the maximum, but quickly in the Paris process, 1.5 degrees was added to the agenda. People have asked me, where did that come from? Did the science change? The answer, of course, is no. The science did not change. However, I would argue the ambition of the global community did. The world has already reached a 0.7 or 0.8 degree temperature rise, but 2 degrees has dire consequences for many of the climate vulnerable communities and in particular small island states. The small island states raised the 1.5 degree target as a means of pointing out just how vulnerable their islands are to sea level rise. For example, the Marshall Islands mentioned on many occasions that they predict they will only have five Christmases left on their island home. While many nations got on board quickly with the idea of 1.5 degrees C, Saudi Arabia, representing the Middle Eastern states, was staunchly opposed to changing the temperature target. Ultimately, the text included mention of both targets, but soft wording on 1.5 degrees. The wording states, Holding the global average temperature increase well below 2 degrees with an effort to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. Common but Differentiated Responsibility, or CBDR, is the acknowledgement that responsibility must be differentiated based on socioeconomic context, historic contributions to the problem of climate change, and financial, technological, and structural capacity to act. In other words, that the developed world must take responsibility for their contributions to climate change and help the developing world as they strive to improve the quality of life for their citizens in a more climate-friendly manner. This has been a huge point of contention between the developed and developing nations in the past. But ultimately, CBDR was central in both the mitigation and adaptation clauses of the agreement, and the developed world acknowledged their role as a leader and driver on climate action. Next issue was climate finance. Climate finance has always been a difficult discussion because of the sheer amount of capital needed to address climate issues. The big issue around finance at Paris was mobilizing new money for battling climate change. Simply renaming dollars or shuffling funds around is not good enough for the challenges that we face. While $100 billion, the figure, did make the agreement, all mention of new, additional, or predictable funding was removed from the agreement, so the future of climate finance remains somewhat uncertain. I'm sad to say that the inclusion of human and indigenous people's rights was one of the issues where the negotiation definitely came up short. On the second last day of the negotiation, human rights was removed from the operational text and moved into the preamble only, much to the dismay of many civil society groups. Gender responsiveness did make a few appearances throughout the agreement, but not to the degree that most advocates were hoping for. There is concern that the lacking elements of human rights will affect implementation of the agreement. Loss and damage refers to the fact that despite best climate mitigation and adaptation efforts, some people will experience loss and damage to their livelihoods and property. Dealing with this issue is a challenge for the negotiators. While it was given its own clause in the agreement and its importance was highlighted, the key issues of liability and compensation were not addressed, and this is a concern going ahead. A very challenging part of climate mitigation is the sheer scale of the problem. Our global carbon budgets simply are not big enough to allow the world to continue operating business as usual. Knowing this, emissions analysis assumes decarbonization, as in zero emissions, by 2050, which of course is a very tall order. In Paris, this point was given some recognition, but was not a key element of the negotiation. The timelines that were determined and the language associated with them ultimately ended up being a little bit strange. The agreement states that there is a goal to peak emissions as soon as possible, and I quote, to aim to achieve a balance between anthropogenic emissions and removals by sinks in the second half of the century. Finally, one of the most exciting developments during the negotiation process was the formation of the High Ambition Coalition. In the last few days of the negotiation, a group of over 100 countries formed a symbolic group that they called the High Ambition Coalition. 
This group pushed for some of the more ambitious issues in the agreement, such as 1.5 degrees and $100 billion in climate finance. But they also pushed for high ambition in review and ratcheting of climate commitments. In the end, the agreement recognizes the need to review the nationally determined contributions every five years beginning in 2018 and encourages deepening of commitments over the course of the agreement to close the emissions gap. So those are the main points. I hope I've made it clear that while this agreement is not perfect, there is a lot to work with. It represents a huge step for global climate action. So what's next? The agreement has been reached and there has been sweeping support for it in the global community. However, it still has one major hurdle to overcome, adoption. Over the course of the next several months, nations will take the agreement home and work to gain support for it in their own nations. At the end of April, nations will meet in New York to sign the agreement with the Secretary General. If most or all sign onto the agreement, it will set a strong foundation for action and implementation. And that's all I've got. As I've mentioned, I'm going to post some articles and analysis on the Student Energy blog so you can read more about the agreement. Thanks. Our next interview is with a woman who's had a significant impact on Canada and the global environmental movement. Elizabeth May is the leader of Canada's Green Party, the only elected member in Parliament. She spent a 40-year career as an environmentalist in Canada, working as the executive director of the Sierra Club, working in public policy, and working on a variety of grassroots and community initiatives. Elizabeth May truly is one of the most influential women, not only in environment, but in Canadian politics. Without further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome Elizabeth May to Energy Voices. So welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks, John. Great to be here. So first off, I have to I have to thank you for your uh, your blogs and your videos from COP21. Uh, my, myself and my team, we had about seven of us from Student Energy. And every day we'd come home from events and side events and we would uh, watch you and Claire Martin, be it if it was a blog or a video post. And uh, you guys were directly responsible for keeping us up to date on the happenings at COP21. Oh, well, that's great. Well, I've, uh, it was a uh, very intense experience being on the inside of the negotiation, so uh, we should exchange notes sometime because I know there were a lot of wonderful side events and events that were, you know, sort of outside the, the core. I sometimes think of, of cops as being um, like, an, you know, an onion. You've got, you've got tons <laughs> of layers, and I was um, sort of in, in, the, in, the, in, in the main negotiating halls, which were in a lot of ways... The, the most uh, stultifyingly boring from time to time, <laughs> the ones that required the overnight uh, negotiations. But we ended up with a much better agreement than many people thought we would when we began. Uh, if it's okay with you, I sort of want to ask you a few questions first about sort of you and your background, um, and then dive into a little bit of the, the details about what happened in Paris uh, in December. That's fine. Sure. So the the first question, sort of taking us right back to the start, what is it that got you involved? What what was it that made you passionate and, and interested in pursuing uh, environment and, and dem- democratic issues as your careers work? Oh, I, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I, I've been, um, uh, from my earliest days, someone who felt very connected to nature. Uh, one of my best friends, Farley Mowat, always felt that the people who became really active in the environmental movement had some childhood connection, as he did, you know, his, his, his wanderings in the back of, mm-hmm. of the town limits of Saskatoon and wandering out into Prairie and spending a lot of time mucking about and, and looking at, uh, at tadpoles. Uh, there's a, uh, my early connections were that I, I grew up in a very rural part of um, Connecticut. I was, uh, my family uh, home was uh, from when I was born to when I was 18. I lived on uh, seven acres um, in the outskirts of Hartford, Connecticut. It was wetland in our backyard. It was endlessly, um, our, it wasn't really a yard. It was wilderness. It was really quite wild, and we had a, um, a lot of a lot of animals. We had pets, uh, everything from uh, dogs and cats to ponies and sheep and donkeys. So I had a, I, I think I was terribly connected to all of that. And as it happened, uh, roadside spraying with insecticides killed a number of our sheep and I, if there was one incident that that really uh, put me on the path of being an environmentalist it was that but um, having pet lambs had made me, I'd already become a vegetarian when I was about 10 so all of my earliest instincts were towards protecting nature 
b- before I knew there was such a thing as, uh, you know, I was born in 1954, so baby boomer generation. I was part of um, the the generation that first learned through Silent Spring and, and Rachel Carson's work uh, what it meant to have humanity poison its own nest. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the majority of our listeners and members are, are students, so we they tend to be sort of between the ages of 18 and 25. And so uh, I'd like for you to maybe capture for us a little bit of, of what was the, the environmental conversation in the 70s and 80s. So you mentioned Silent Spring, you mentioned some of the issues around sort of DDT and spraying and that sort of thing. Uh, can you capture for us a, a little bit of the sense of what that conversation was like 20, 30 years ago? Well, it was... It, oh, it was um... Well, 20 or 30 years ago isn't for, for me. I mean, uh, that, okay, so we go back to fighting. My family moved uh, to Cape Breton Island uh, just as, as uh, when I was still in my late teens. Uh, I have to say my first experience successfully opposing an industry plan that government was going to pay for for blanketing Cape Breton Island in, in toxic chemicals to combat uh, a forest insect. Uh, they were in some ways simpler times, easier to win a campaign. There was a less well-organized environmental movement, so we, we created our own effort. I don't know that we could have won with the kind of corporate influence mm-hmm. that exists today over so many governments. But the Nova Scotia government in 1976 canceled plans to spray insecticides over the whole of the island, responding to citizen concerns. Uh, so it was in some ways harder and that there was, it was disorganized term environment wasn't really uh, top of mind, uh, but we won every campaign that I worked on for uh, from what, from 1976 till the late 1980s. Uh, the, uh, there was, uh, I think, a stronger sense on the part of citizens that by organizing, you could change a decision your government had made. So there was, uh, there was, we were less passive as citizens, I'd have to say. We were more willing to say we're going to put on hold everything else in our normal lives for the next however long it takes to make sure, uh, you know, whatever the issue was, that we don't get sprayed with uh, insecticides, that we don't get sprayed with Agent Orange, that we don't allow uranium mining here. There were a whole series of issues where citizen mobilization and a really grassroots level altered government decision-making uh, through the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And so you bring up that you'd been successful in a lot of these early campaigns in the 70s and early 80s, um, and, and yet you still went and, and sort of formulated the Environmental Defense Fund and, and were the, the founding executive director of the Sierra Club of Canada. So so with having success in that sort of grassroots effort, what was the, the why was it necessary to to become more formal and more organized through, through the Sierra Club and, and other initiatives? Well, I think they are essential. I think, you know, to have an organized voice. Now, I love Sierra Club a lot, and that Sierra Club of Canada right now, in case listeners are willing to go online and make a donation, having been the group that continued most forthrightly to oppose the Harper agenda in Ottawa, they've suffered for it, and they're having a lot of trouble staying open right now. The groups that retreated from Ottawa, because there wasn't, there were a lot of groups that made a calculated decision that it really didn't make sense to keep um, running your head against a brick wall in the Harper regime, so Mm -hmm. They closed their Ottawa offices and concentrated on provinces. That's a reasonable decision. Sierra Club is really is suffering from having done the right thing, I think, and, and I, I haven't been involved with it since the 10 years ago when I stepped down as executive director to run for leader of the Green Party. They're having a really rough go right now. The reason it's important to have that kind of, of, of capacity is, and Sierra Club is, is a model I really support with a lot of grassroots local members. So you've got a tremendous volunteer base but you're not all on your own. That was one of the hardest things in the early in the, in the early seventies, was the sense that there was no one else for backup. There was no place you could go for help with research. There was no organized base to say, okay, now when you come to Ottawa, we'll set up meetings for you, or will you? So, so the the capacity support uh, is really important. I think I think there's a there's a risk, and some groups have gone this route where an environmental group becomes so professionalized and well-organized that it essentially becomes disconnected mm-hmm. from from mobilization at the grassroots. And that's, that's the brilliance of the Sierra Club model, which was originated in 1892 in the U.S., but it, it is very much a volunteer, volunteer-run organization. So when you read, for instance, critiques of Big Green by, by Naomi Klein, and I agree with her, some of the bigger groups, 
have gone in the direction of becoming more corporate to have a steadier cash flow. And that's, of course, the, the peril of a, of a group like Sierra Club is if you're volunteer-run and volunteer-led and you don't have big money behind you, uh, that's why they're having such a financial crisis right now. And and, and with that approach of, of taking the very grassroots um, volunteer-based approach, what were some of the, the accomplishments that you were very proud of? So we're, we're focused so much today, and I feel like so much of the, the, the environmental conversation is around things like climate change and these sort of macro-global issues, but uh, fill, fill some of our listeners in on sort of between the, the, the mid-80s and the mid-2000s, um, what were some of the big accomplishments that you're, you're proud to report on on behalf of Sierra Club? Oh, well, goodness, the, the creation of a number of, of really significant protected areas. Now, Sierra Club was one of the key groups. I really wasn't with Sierra Club when we managed to get a national park in, in uh, Haida Gwaii. Guayahanas National Park was one of the things I'm most proud of. I actually was working inside the office of the Minister of Environment at that point in the late 80s. But Sierra Club played a very important role. Grassroots citizen mobilization, I'll credit Friends of the Earth and its work for, get, for working on getting a Montreal Protocol to protect the ozone layer. And that was in 1987 also when I was working in government. So it isn't the case that grassroots mobilization only works on local issues. Grassroots mobilization in Canada led to uh, the fight, you know, the success of getting treaties to stop the, uh, and reduce sulfur dioxide to confront the acid rain threat, which was certainly uh, a trans-border U.S.-Canada threat and, and resolved through a lot of work uh, in the late 1980s. The same thing can be said of ozone depletion. Uh, we needed a global treaty. We got a global treaty. A big part of that was, was uh, the work of environmental groups, I'd say particularly, as I mentioned, Friends of the Earth in that case. Uh, as I took over and, and started Sierra Club's national office in 1989, we had tremendous success on a wide range of issues, including climate change. Uh, getting the Kyoto Protocol ratified in Canada was an enormous success, and despite the horrors of what the Harper administration did to Canada on climate change. Uh, the ratification of the Kyoto Protocol with the opposition of the province of Alberta, the opposition of the Bush administration, was a significant accomplishment, uh, not of just one environmental group, but of, of municipalities, trade unions, uh, the, the faith community, a lot of churches did a lot of work on that. So we had a, a, a range of success. We got toxic chemicals in terms of Sierra Club's work, uh, the banning of a number of dangerous pesticides, uh, the improvement of provincial regulation over forests and, and, and forestry activities, a, a wide range of um, really exciting and work on the Great Lakes. And, and uh, I'm very proud of the work that, that I personally did at Sierra Club did to stop a Great Lakes Accord that would have allowed, it, allowed uh, the selling of Great Lakes water. And, and I want to go back to something you said just a minute ago um, about your work with the, the Montreal Protocol, because um, I, I see there being some similarities and parallels around the, the need for sort of multilateral and global action around uh, the issues addressed within the Montreal Protocol, as well as the Paris Agreement. Um, if you were to compare and contrast the Montreal Protocol and the Paris Agreement arrived to at COP21, um, would you say the Montreal Protocol was easier to sign, more difficult to sign? Maybe give us a, a sense of somebody who's been involved in both of those processes, um, what the differences and similarities would be. In the context of the time, they were equally difficult. The difference was there was greater political will in 1987, and there, because we had not yet taken the next step into global corporate rule, in other words, back in 1987, the Uruguay round, negotiating the next uh, phase of the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, that led to the creation of the World Trade Organization in the early to mid-90s. The, the existence of the World Trade Organization has stymied effective environmental treaty making. So the biggest difference between the Montreal Protocol in 1987 to save life on Earth by stopping the use of ozone-depleting substances and the 1997, just a decade later, Kyoto Protocol to save all life on Earth from the worst impacts of the climate crisis uh, was the intervening creation of the World Trade Organization and its uh, subtle efforts to make sure that the very same governments that negotiated the Montreal Protocol never again did what the Montreal Protocol achieved, which was having a global agreement to protect the environment that was backstopped with, in, in, with effective enforcement 
through trade sanctions. So the Montreal Protocol to protect the ozone layer, and I, as I mentioned, I was part of the negotiating group there with the Minister of Environment at the time in the Mulroney administration. We had no pressure against the use of uh, trade sanctions to be employed by any of the countries around the world against any government that was a party to the convention and flouted its core regime that was that we would stop making, using, selling uh, the worst ozone-depleting chemicals. Now, I say it was difficult. People will say, well, that was easy. That was just ozone depletion. You've got to bear in mind that that, uh, the uh, Reagan administration at the time, the Secretary of the Interior in the Reagan administration, weeks before the final negotiations in Montreal, woke up to the fact that the U.S. EPA was negotiating this and tried to stop it. He made public statements that we didn't need to get rid of ozone-depleting substances, that we could just wear broad-brimmed hats and wear sunscreen, <laughs> and that we were threatening uh, the economic uh, vitality of the United States and Dow Chemical by thinking that we could get rid of ozone-depleting substances. And we also had a, a denier movement at the time of companies that said, look, the ozone layer isn't thinning, and if it is, it's not our chemical that's responsible. Uh, now, of course, it was it was one uh, economic sector. It wasn't as all-pervasive as the energy sector and fossil fuels used everywhere. But it wasn't that easy. And I think we do a disservice to the political courage of the time of 1987 in getting a, a, a globally binding U.N. protocol to change the way we use chemicals to protect the ozone layer. And the ozone layer has begun to repair itself already, which is a very good sign. Uh, we, the, the Paris Agreement was tough, but we had the great good fortune to have a host country that wanted us to succeed. And I've come to the view that the Copenhagen negotiations in 19, uh, rather in the year 2009, you see my age here, 2009 in Copenhagen, COP15, I think largely failed because of the uh, uh, sabotage. And I, I think it was it was either overt sabotage by the Prime Minister of Denmark or uh, a level of obtuse incompetence that defies belief. But the, the, the fact that uh, Prime Minister Rasmussen, who was a right-winger, when Denmark offered to host COP15, the Danish government was a climate-friendly government. By COP15 uh, in Copenhagen, uh, Prime Minister Rasmussen of the right wing uh, was, I think, influenced by Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, and certainly many things done by the Danish government in that negotiation were uh, uh, constituted sabotage. But we also had a very unhelpful intervention from the U.S., from Barack Obama in his first climate negotiations. Uh, Paris in 2015 had the benefit of Barack Obama in his second term, a lot of lessons learned, and a tremendously uh, uh, diligent uh, chairperson for the conference, the president of the conference, being the foreign minister for France, Laurent Fabius, who is a man of great integrity and, and really... Uh, the host government and the lead negotiator, the president of COP, makes a difference. And and I think that's an important point for our listeners to understand that for, for most people that, that the 90% of people that don't even totally know what COP21 is or what's going on there and don't have a view into the actual negotiations, that was actually something I was surprised in. This was my my first uh, COP event that I'd attended. And just the degree to which the, the host and the chairperson and Laurent Fabius had authority and control and, and sort of... Um, stewardship over that final agreement um, was something that was surprising to me yeah. and 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 the way in which he he stewarded that authority and and really made sure that there was a consensus and that the drive was for a global consensus not just sort of lowest common denominator but finding that opportunity for uh, to really pull the best pieces out of each and every country was something that um, I was frankly stunned with I'd, I'd never seen sort of a, a quote-unquote bureaucrat uh, operate with such sort of deft and nuance and and I think he deserves the kudos that have been absolutely you know and and if you if you wanted i mean going back to to when we last could be proud to be canadians in a climate negotiation it was 2005 and the person who did 
the job Laurent Fabius did at uh, COP21, COP11, that was Stéphane Dion. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons, I mean, as leader of the Green Party of Canada, people are saying, well, why do you always say that Stéphane Dion such a... Well, we worked together. I, as president of the COP, he took a very, very tough negotiation because we were still dealing with the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. And it saved Kyoto. Of course, we had the whole misfortune as a country to then have Stephen Harper destroy Kyoto. But the uh, the process there was one where you could say, you know, the, you could see so clearly how the presidency and a commitment to get to a successful agreement really makes a difference. Uh, you would have been shocked now that you've lived through COP21. I can tell you that at COP15, um, the, the, the environment minister for Denmark, who's a wonderful person, Connie Heidegger, she wanted to have a good agreement. She, is the, she was at the time environment minister. Her prime minister, Rasmussen, wasn't speaking with her. They were not on speaking terms. She had her own team trying to figure out how to make the negotiations succeed. Rasmussen had his own team, and they weren't on speaking terms. At the same time, when, when the first week of negotiations was over, Rasmussen decided to put himself in the chair. So it had been chaired for the first half by Connie Heidegger. He then basically replaced her as the prime minister and proceeded to issue draft texts, which countries hadn't seen and which were clearly developed to give um, a, a, basically a free ride to the industrialized world. The, the developing countries were incensed. So the, the, uh, if you want to know the polar opposite of Laurent Fabius, it was Rasmussen in Copenhagen. Yeah. And, and I, want to, I want to use this opportunity to, to segue a bit into um, what it's like to be on the ground as part of the negotiations at COP. So you, you've obviously been to a number of these events um, and, and specifically focusing up on COP21 in Paris. Um, there's so few people who actually get the opportunity to see the negotiations and the process from the inside. And so uh, I'd love if you could just share with us sort of a, a few minutes on what a sort of quote unquote uh, typical day at COP21 look like? Um, what's going on? What What is the actual agenda for the day? What's yeah. being discussed? And how is that process actually happening from a, a, a logistical perspective? Well, I suppose I should clarify my own role, too, in that uh, I've been attending conferences, the parties, the climate negotiations for a long time. I don't, I'm at COP11, for example, I wasn't a member of the Canadian government delegation. I could have been if I'd wanted to. Uh, because the environmental movement uh, traditionally was involved and invited to at least a a representative sampling of the environmental movement would be invited by governments to be on the delegation. So I'd served on Canadian government delegations at various negotiations over the years. But, for instance, in 1992 at the Earth Summit, that was where the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed after two years of negotiating that document. For listeners who wonder, why are we talking, what is a COP? A conference of the parties, it derives from that 1992 agreement. A party is a country that signed and ratified a convention, in this case in the climate world, uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was signed and ratified by every country on Earth, based on the 1992 treaty. Now, I attended the Earth Summit as an observer, meaning you can get in the room, but you're not on your government's delegation, and every now and then there will be rooms that are closed to you. At COP11 in Montreal... Uh, I was I chose to be an observer, uh, registered under Sierra Club, where I was executive director at the time. We could get into every room there. It depends on how the negotiations are, how many people are around. Do you, for logistical reasons, basically just the size of the room, need to say no observers are allowed in here? Uh, so during the, the, the uh, horrible um, era under the previous government, even though I was a member of parliament by 2011, I wasn't allowed on the government delegation. And increasingly, it was hard to get in the room as an observer. Uh, Copenhagen was a very bad experience for that reason. I had, I had credentials to be at the COP, but a lot of rooms were closed. So as a member of parliament over the last uh, five years, I, to get in all the rooms, I sometimes attended these COPs as a member of a delegation of another country. I attended the Durban negotiations as a member of the delegation of Papua New Guinea. I attended the Warsaw negotiations uh, with the government of Afghanistan just to be able to play a useful role. So what does that role look like? So speaking not just of COP21, but in general, it's useful to be there to share information, to work with my Green Party colleagues around the world to know what government has a specific issue or a new idea, something innovative that could lead to a breakthrough. 
Information is the grease to the wheels and the cogs of a negotiation with about 100 moving parts, different sections of the agreement, all seeking some way to forge consensus. So if you know that a country might be willing to have a, a, a tougher target to reduce emissions, as long as uh, they're also uh, going to get recognition for work that they do in other countries, that's just an example of a kind of, kind of a trade-off. There are linkages. And when you share information, you can help forge consensus. Mm-hmm. So a typical day at COP21, and I was here again, finally, a member of my own government's delegation, which was great, we'd have, uh, not every day, but whenever, but almost every day, we'd have a meeting of an inner group, uh, members of parliament from other dele- other parties that were, that were in Paris. Uh, I was the only one who was there throughout, but every now and then there'd be uh, another uh, political party's uh, member of parliament who wanted to stay in the loop. We'd meet often with the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Catherine McKenna, or members of her staff. She was also tapped by Laurent Fabius to be a co-facilitator. Now, there were only 14 co-facilitators from every country all around the world. So Catherine McKenna ended up playing a quite vital role in negotiations. Talk about being a new minister, I mean, new member of parliament, new minister of environment climate change, newly negotiating at a climate meeting and tapped by the president be part of an inner core. So, and, and why? And in your opinion, why do you think that happened? You, you mentioned that sort of 2005 was one of the last times in which um, Canada played a pivotal role. So we had a 10-year gap where uh, I haven't done the research, but I'm assuming Canada probably earned the most fossil of the day awards oh, over that 10-year absolutely. period. Absolutely. And did. so coming out of that 10-year year period, you, you we're immediately thrust into the fire of one of the most important climate negotiations in history, and we're sort of one of the, the 14 co-facilitators. And so why the 180? Why the 180 in our reputation and the immediate insertion of some of our senior leaders into those important roles? Well, I think Canadians have been uh, under-informed by... Uh, I'll say it since I'm chatting with you, a lazy media that decided that climate wasn't an issue because Stephen Harper said it wasn't an issue. So the extent of damage done by the previous government to global progress on climate change has never been adequately reported to Canadians. And and I have to say that the Liberals and the NDP deserve some of the blame for this as well, because when Stephen Harper decided not to include opposition members of Parliament on government delegations, the other parties didn't bother to go either. So it fed into a narrative that basically nothing was happening. And, and and the, the Harper administration used to, to cheer the news when they'd get a fossil of the day. They managed to turn it around so that, that nationally, Canadians know very little of how much damage we were doing in the world. So the 180 was uh, the U.N. system celebrating that uh, an administration that had uh, hampered global negotiations and played the role of saboteur was finally gone. That was enormously good news to the world. Mm-hmm. It was also made clear from our earliest statements on climate, from statements by Stéphane Dion and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Catherine McKenna in the lead-up to COP21, that Canada wanted to play a positive role. Mm-hmm. So when you're picking uh, co-facilitators and you're in the United Nations, knowing that you have a North, you know, a Canada being a G7 country, going from uh, saboteur to would-be hero, you're pretty happy about that. So mm-hmm. Catherine McKenna was definitely thrown in at the deep end. And I'd have to say, trying to describe a typical day for anybody at COP is impossible because the schedule changes constantly. It's a moving target. Uh, The first week of negotiations um, broke with the normal pattern because usually the first week of negotiations is at the level of bureaucrats with the high-level portion in the second week. This time, for the first time ever, world leaders came and addressed the first day, November 30th. That was a bit tough on the U.N. system. Friends of mine who work inside the U.N. said, boy, you know, we're used to ramping up to a level of intensity. First day usually starts a little slow. If you're you're in a long-range race, you don't usually want to start with a sprint. This was starting with a sprint. People were exhausted by midweek, having had 150 world leaders on the Monday. Then right into the, the depths of the continued negotiations, which is really four years' worth of some of the same players in the ADP working group, the Advanced Durban Platform for Action, with the responsibility of getting a text together that would then form a useful basis for the political negotiations. 
that that first week of negotiations went late to, into the night every night, but it didn't go round the clock. But that that ADP working group concluded its work on the Saturday, December sixth. That went straight into, or Saturday, December fifth. That went straight into turning that document over to the COP. The negotiations quite often at COPs don't include Saturdays and Sundays. This year, things went right through Saturday, right through Sunday. And the opening of the key COP presentation was Sunday night. And that's where Catherine McKenna really distinguished Canada right out of the park by announcing that Canada favored 1.5 degrees global average temperature increase as the, the, the level above which we should not go. Uh, that was a surprise to the world, and I can tell you from someone who was in the negotiations on the inside, that was a change in where Canada was prepared to go. And I give full credit to Environment Minister uh, Catherine McKenna for making that decision. Uh, Canada was always in favor of a legally binding treaty, but that was the first moment when it was said out loud, was that Sunday night, that Canada wanted to legally bind, when I say always, under the new government, obviously not under the previous government. So the Liberals had said legally binding treaty, go to 1.5 degrees Celsius and no more support Indigenous people's role in this process. Now, I have to say, because I know I'm going to have to race very quickly, Mm -hmm. that domestically what what the Paris Agreement translates into, uh, so I don't want to oversell it, it does not solve our problems, Mm -hmm. but it gives us the tools to solve our problems. So Canada now has a very tight timeline to before Earth Day, before April 22nd, 2016, we need to go back to the UN for the signing ceremony for Paris Agreement, which is set for April 22nd with a new target, because Canada's target on the books of the UN is still the Harper target. We have to change that target and and make it more aggressive to meet our own commitments, where Canada made such a difference, to help the world have a Paris Accord that moves to 1.5. To get to 1.5 degrees, because right now global commitments from all around the world take us to, uh, worst case, 3.7 degrees Celsius global average temperature increase. That's the aggregate of existing targets at the moment that COP opened take us to 3.7. So we can't let that stay on the books. Canada has to have a more aggressive target. Justin Trudeau pledged when he was in the campaign that within 90 days of the end of the Paris Accord, we would have a new target, and we need one urgently. Mm-hmm. And and I, I know you do have to run, um, but before we go, uh, I, I just wanted your thoughts that as the leader of the Green Party of Canada and somebody who's been involved in this movement for, for decades now, in your opinion, is the Paris Agreement a win for the environment? Oh, no question. I mean, it's one of those questions people can say the glass is half empty or the glass is half full. If Paris had failed, there would be no glass. I mean, we would have broken glass on the floor because after the disaster of Copenhagen and the bad faith bargaining and the distrust that was that was exhibited there, we would not have had another chance. And that's something that's hard to communicate within Canada. The, the idea that you can go on forever trying to get a global treaty that has all countries included to reduce greenhouse gases was not a plausible sell if Paris had failed. So we now have an agreement that requires every five years a global stock taking within which we ratchet up our commitments to reduce emissions. Uh, it was, um, it's not just a win for the environment. I, I, I think it's a question of life and death for human civilization, for what kind of world we live in. Uh, this has given us a fighting chance, but it doesn't guarantee success. It gives us only that, a fighting chance, which means we have to, uh, we have to increase uh, the intensity of uh, provincial municipal efforts, we have to create a brand new federal plan for fighting climate change. And that means we have to get fossil fuels out of electricity, ASAP. So that means all provinces that still use coal or, or, or uh, uh, any fossil fuel to generate electricity need to move off of it uh, urgently. We need to move aggressively to deal with the amount of waste. Canada wastes more than half the energy we use. So uh, heating oil for um, buildings of all kinds, municipal, residential, institutional, we need to work aggressively to stop the waste of energy in our buildings. We need to get rid of the internal combustion engine as quickly as possible. And we need better and more convenient, accessible, efficient public transit to help people make a choice. And right now it's hard for people to have a viable choice to leave their car at home because the entire 
system has been geared around um, the convenience of in, 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 internal combustion engine personal transportation. Uh, that's got to be shelved. We can still have a lot of people are going to need their cars. We'll be, I think, moving really readily to electric vehicles. But we have a real challenge in Canada, and we have to move quickly to reduce greenhouse gas emissions with the goal of eliminating our dependence on fossil fuels entirely as quickly as possible. Well, I think you've done a, a fantastic job of sort of giving the laundry list of challenges that still exist in front of us and, and that, that the next generation of energy leaders need to sort of put on their backs and figure out some solutions to these challenges. So I just wanted to say a, a huge thank you on behalf of myself and all of our listeners for taking the time and, and putting the effort in over so many decades to, to be a true environmental champion within our country. And uh, again, we really appreciate the time well, you took for us today. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the time. Talk to, and I look forward to meeting you. For sure. Take Talk care, to you Elizabeth. later. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. For our final interview of this month's episode of Energy Voices, I'm thrilled to share with you a short snippet of an interview I was able to have with Constance Okolet, who's a rural subsistence farmer in Uganda. Constance is living with the realities of climate change on a daily basis and the impacts that it has on their ability to earn a living and to continue and maintain a reliable source of income and quality of life. Here is my interview in Paris with Constance Okolet. Uh, my name is Constance Okolet. I come from the eastern part of Uganda in a place called Tororo, and my village is called Asinget A. I am a peasant farmer. A mother to seven and a chairperson of Osukru United Women Network. We do farming and we grow crops like maize, cassava, millet, and many others. But we are so much impacted by climate change that these days we don't know what food to eat, we don't know when to harvest, we don't know when to plant. We don't know when is the next rains. And and so what brought you, what are you hoping to achieve by coming to COP21? So what are you recommending or what are you advocating for uh, in attending some of the sessions here in Paris? Okay, by me coming here, first, um, my voice will be heard by the, by the, by the government, many governments, and they will understand that we are very much affected and they will know how to how to put things right then uh, with the time i know they will have to reduce the emission and we may have our 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 seasons back our like, I mean, with our weather patterns, right? Yeah. And by coming here, we, we tell them, when we tell our stories, they know that we need help. What are the things that the international community can do to ease some of the pain and the challenges that climate change have created in Uganda? Okay, there are, there are things like adaptation and mitigation fund. If they can speed it up, they give to the local communities because that adaptation and the mitigation, there's a point whereby women can, women or men can begin uh, small-scale businesses. They can make, say, forests, begin planting big, big forests. Some alternatives of how to live, not to depend on agriculture as they use, but used to but now they can have another alternative. And if they don't have the food, they may have uh, another, another, maybe like livestock, poultry, keeping, what, so that they can harvest money from there and they can have a way of living. Perfect. Well, we wish you best of luck in what you're doing here, and, and, and we'll be airing this story on part of Energy Voices to, to give some awareness to our listeners as far as the role that uh, and the impact that climate change has on a very specific level. Uh, I think that oftentimes we talk about climate change as this very abstract concept, and there's very real-world examples of some of the challenges that can come of that. So uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today, and we, we wish you the best of luck. 
Thank you very much too. That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai St. Clair. For previous episodes, visit bit.ly slash energyvoices or search Energy Voices in iTunes or your favorite podcast service. 